I'm Jyotha Gupta and this is the pulse. Bird watching or birding is a great way to reflect on your life or just to zone out for a while. It's a chance to get out in nature and take a break from the stress of work and your daily routine. It has a range of therapeutic benefits. Bird watching has been shown to reduce anxiety, stress and even depression. It's also just a cool hobby. It's something that can be done individually if you like some peace and quiet or it can be done as part of a group. And of course, the term bird watching, it turns out, is a little deceptive. After all, many people with disabilities including blindness are avid birders. Today, we discuss birding by ear. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Jyotha Gupta and I'm joining you from the Accessible Media Studios in Toronto. My hair is pulled back in a bun and I am wearing a uh, orange t-shirt or shirt with uh, a round neck and short sleeves. In today's episode, we are talking about birding or birding by ear more specifically. Quite a number of years ago, when I was still um, a child, my parents bought me a pair of binoculars, hoping that I would be able to participate in bird watching with everybody else. Of course, as someone who was visually impaired, I had limited success, but it made me realize that you could just as well listen to birdsong and be a part of something really interesting a chance to do something recreational or to get out in nature. So for quite a number of years now, I've had a keen interest in bird watching or birding. And my guest today is similarly interested in birding. Jerry Barrier is a retired access technology instructor and an avid birder by ear going all the way back to his university days. Jerry, hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's really nice to have you on the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, Jerry, we've all heard about bird watching. What exactly is birding by ear? <laughs> well, number one, uh, they don't talk about bird watching these days near as much as they did a long time ago. It's now called birding, B-I-R-D-I-N-G. And birding by ear is trying to learn to identify birds by the sounds they make. And uh, on its surface, that sounds fairly simple. But a lot of birds make a lot of different sounds, and they make different sounds at different times of the year and in different localities. Uh, so there's a lot to it. But birding by ear is what I do because I'm totally blind, so I can't really see the birds. Uh, ideally, I love to go birding with someone who is sighted who can say, oh, yeah, that really is a Baltimore Oriole that you thought you heard. Uh, but so that's that's what birding by ear is. So is this something that only people who are blind or low vision happen to be interested in? Or is birding by ear something that everyone and anyone can take up regardless of ability? Uh, birding by ear is practiced by a lot of really top-notch birders. And here's the reason why. When you're looking for a bird, you're looking up into the canopy where there are lots of leaves on the tree in the summer. And... Even if you can see the bird or, or think you know where it is, your field of vision is restricted, whereas the field of hearing is 360 degrees. Uh, that's number one. Secondly, 
you can hear a bird a lot further away than you can see it usually. I should have said farther away. Um, you can hear a bird at a pretty good distance if it's not too noisy in the area. And um, you can hear a bird under many circumstances. You know, it can be foggy or very cloudy or anything. It could be a, a snowstorm and you can still hear a bird even though you may not be able to see it. The ideal way to bird is to be able to see it and hear it both. You hear it and you think, oh, I think that's a, a scarlet tanager. And then you look up and say, yep, that's really what it is. But in my case, I hear it and then I say it's a scarlet tanager. So in my mind, it is. Now, you did say this can get pretty complicated. How many species of birds would you say you're familiar with just based on their bird song? Well, number one, I have to relearn some of them every year because some of the warblers are only around in a certain part of the summer or spring, so I don't get a chance to hear them that often. I would say ones that I can identify readily. I've never actually counted them, but probably 50 or 60 maybe. That's amazing. How did you get started with birding by year? by a sheer accident in a way. Um, it was a college professor in a biology class that wasn't sure what to do with me during the lab portion. So he let me borrow his, they were actually record albums at the time, this was back in the 70s. He let me borrow his Cornell University bird sounds records. And he said, your lab grade is going to be based on a walk in the woods with me at the end of the semester, and I want to see how many of these birds you can identify. And when I first started, I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't robin, cardinal, sparrow, they all sound the same to me. How will I ever learn them or even care to remember them? But by the end of the semester, I was absolutely hooked. And that was the time when cassette recorders had just kind of become readily available. And I got one and I started going around everywhere I would go, especially if I was on vacation or in a, an unusual area, I would take that thing with me. It was a fairly good sized cassette recorder that ran on uh, C batteries and had a little microphone actually attached to the top of it. And I would hold it up over my head and record the bird and then listen to it and try and compare it with one of the recordings that I had from my professor's records. But anyway, needless to say, that got me started and I haven't stopped since then. Now you see, this is how you open up a can of worms because the moment you mentioned that your lab grade was dependent on your skills as a birder by year, I have to ask you, how did you do on your lab? Did you pass? I did, I got an A. That's amazing. I, I yeah, I had learned probably maybe 10 birds at that point, and those were ones that we happened to hear out in the woods that day. And uh, the professor, I said I did great. I'm so glad to hear it. And so that's really what sparked off this hobby, uh, birding by year, and you've, you've carried it on for a number of years. I'm just curious, and I ask this because I live in an urban center. I, I live in downtown Toronto. With so much noise, it's hard to hear any birds. Has that been your experience as well, that there are fewer species of birds to listen to when you live in a city or an urban area? Or is it that the birds are present, but we're just not listening for them? So what's actually going on there? Well, it's a little bit of both. Uh, there are birds present. If you're really in an urban area, you might have pigeons, uh, you might have morning doves. You almost definitely will have house sparrows, which make the single sound over and over again. They get like, like cheap, 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 and that's pretty much all they say. Uh, but there are birds that are even in the most urban areas. However, it's certainly easier to, to find birds that are interesting to listen to 
if you go either to a less urban area or to a park or somewhere there where there's a, a little pond and maybe a few trees, because those are things that birds need. They need they need trees. They need places where they can perch and hide and they need a water source. And if you have those two things, there's a good likelihood there are going to be some birds around. I live in a relatively urban area uh, and I get chickadees and uh, song sparrows, house sparrows, house finches, lots of different birds around here, robins, cardinals, red-bellied woodpeckers. I hear all those birds, and I, I hear them mostly because I have microphones mounted on the outside of my house, and I have them uh, cabled into where my computer is, and I can turn those microphones on early in the morning, and I do just about every day. And, yeah, I hear the traffic and you know all kinds of wind noise and thunder and everything, but I do hear a lot of birds also. Well, certainly we've come a long way from, from the days of the cassette player. How exactly would you say technology has made it easier for you to bird by ear? I'm glad you asked because it has made a huge difference. Um, I learned probably more birds from a series of CDs called Birding by Ear and More Birding by Ear uh, than through any other source. And that was the best I had. And for a long time... I used to think, you know, I'd give anything if I had an app that would test me. It would play a sound and say, do you know what that is? And if I said yes, then I would have to uh, con confirm that I really heard what I thought I did. There was no such app available for a long time, but now there is. Uh, there is a, an iPhone app called LarkWire. It's a one word, L-A-R-K-W-I-R-E. It is very voiceover friendly, very accessible, and it does exactly that. I can set it for land birds in the northeastern United States, and it will start testing me. It'll play a sound, and then I have the option of either hitting, I'm not sure, or yes, I know this bird. And if I hit yes, it'll name it, and then... I have, I'm on my honor to say wrong if I actually got it wrong. And if I did get it wrong, it will then add it to a random list of birds that it continues to play. And it'll keep that bird on the list until I get it right several times over a short period of time. And then it'll say, oh, you've passed the, uh, you've passed the sparrows uh, list and we won't, we won't use those anymore. So for anyone who really wants to hone their, hone their skills in birding, lark wire is the way to go. Uh, and I'll just say one more thing about technology. Well, I could go on and on about it, actually. Um, the web has, uh, provides many resources. Uh, Cornell University has a site you can go, go to, which is, I believe it's allaboutbirds.org. And if that doesn't find it, just try Cornell Birds. And there's a, a, a website there that you can put in the name of a bird, and it will not only let you hear the sounds, but it'll tell you all about the bird, uh, what, it's, what other birds it's related to, its size compared to other birds, and lots of other things. So the, the web has been wonderful. Actually, my interest in birding is what spawned my interest in learning to write HTML, because a long time ago, when things were simpler and there weren't all kinds of graphics and everything, um, I created a website called birdblind.org. And I still have it, although I have to be honest and say I haven't, haven't kept it up very well in the past probably 10 or 15 years. Um, but 
really technology has opened up the world of birding as it has, has so many other things for me over the years. Did your interest in birding by any chance lead to other interests? I'm just curious about whether you got thinking about uh, birds and their migratory patterns, their habitat. Uh, maybe you got into issues of conservation. Did your interest in birding at all open up these other associated interests for you? Yes, I was just listening to a um, uh, Living on Earth podcast this morning that was talking about uh, plastics and what a, a terrible pollutant they've become over the years, the problems they've caused. I listen to things like that all the time. I also listen to a podcast called Bird Note, which is a daily three-minute podcast which plays a bird and then says some things about it. Um, I know what time sunrise and sunset are most every day, even though I'm totally blind because I, I care about that because that has an impact on what time I should be listening for the birds. Um, I am interested in climate change and concerned about it much more than I would have been had I not gotten involved in this. So yes, my hobby of birding has really changed my life. And I'll go out on a limb and take credit for saying that it has also uh, spawned interest in nature in both of my children who are in their 40s now and my grandchildren and other people in my family. My twin brother, who is sighted, um, is always telling me about birds that he sees. And he's he's got crows that come to his yard and sometimes leave gifts for him, he says. You know, and they do, uh, they are known to do that. If they, if you feed them a lot, they start to like you and recognize you. And sometimes if they see something shiny, they'll grab it and drop it in your yard. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it has, it's been life changing for me. Am I an expert on bird anatomy and things like that? No. Uh, if somebody tells me the colors of a bird, I tend to forget them within 10 seconds because I just don't have a good frame of reference for that. But I do know that the red-bellied woodpecker doesn't have a red belly. Uh, it has a little patch of red on it. And I know that uh, Baltimore Orioles um, maybe don't even exist in Baltimore all that much. That's, that's a name that they got. And a lot of times birds are named after where somebody saw one one time. That doesn't mean that it's a pri its primary habitat. And a lot of birds are named after people too. So... Yeah, it, it has absolutely been life-changing for me. Now, you did say this was a hobby, but I'm sure, Jerry, you're not the only one to have this particular hobby. What sort of a community would you say exists out there for blind birders such as yourself? The only one I know of is for people with disabilities in general, and it's called BirdAbility. Uh, their website is birdability.org. And it start was started by a woman who is a wheelchair user and an avid birder, and she goes alone most of the time. And she uh, decided she wanted to have a way of knowing where there were accessible birding sites around the country. So, And she also wanted to encourage other people with disabilities to become birders. So she started this birdability.org, and they now have a map that it's it's visual, but you can look at it and... If you're in a specific area, you can pick that area and see what other people have said are some of the more accessible birding sites. And it's got other information, too, about uh, how to uh, best assist a blind birder and things like that. But in all honesty, um, finding other people to go birding with has been one of the most difficult challenges for me. 
uh, I do sometimes go with other people, uh, and I've I've kind of gotten to be known around the area because I I've been on radio shows, and I anytime I'm offered the opportunity to talk about birding, I do it, and I've done birding by ear workshops for not not only the Mass Audubon Society, but uh, for the LL Bean. Uh, it's a it's a huge um, outdoor store in Freeport, Maine, and before the pandemic, they invited me up there several years in a row during their weekly spring celebration to do a birding by ear workshop. And I really enjoy doing it. So things like that have gotten me known a little bit. I also have done uh, birding by ear workshops for the, uh, the local uh, training agencies for blind adults and blind children. And uh, I, I do a lot of things like that. So, but yes, it's difficult to find people who are interested in birding and who are not afraid to say, oh, sure, you can come along with me. Um, those who I have, have gone birding with, I think have enjoyed it because I'm friendly and, you know, and I, I am enthusiastic about it. Um, I was actually at a birding event last weekend where uh, the birding event was, was designed specifically to attract people who are blind because uh, there's a lot of uh, movement these days among uh, agencies uh, that serve birders to try and include people with disabilities, uh, just as there is to promote uh, racial diversity and, and other things that didn't necessarily exist so much even a few years ago. But um, so that was a fun time, but there were only five blind people showed up, including me, but we had a good time and uh, I, like, I hope to do things like that more in the future. So do you think the bulk of the difficulty just comes down to the fact that sighted people are hesitant to accompany someone who's blind? Is that what it comes down to, do you think? I think that's a big part of it. Getting transportation to the great birding places is also a challenge. Uh, some of the work I do with the Massachusetts Audubon Society involves helping to uh, design um, accessible nature trails. Some of them have rope guides and braille signage on them and things like that but almost all of them are really difficult to get to by public transportation. So you have to be able to get there and you have to be willing to find somebody who is brave enough uh, to accompany you. And I, as you, as you, I'm sure know, when someone does accompany us, they tend to realize immediately, oh, this is not so bad after all. It's not difficult to guide a blind person. Uh, but some people are very focused on, um, logging as many different species as they can. And, uh, you know, they don't want to be bothered with anything that's going to hold them back from moving around quickly and, and getting it done. But not all birders are that way, though. A few minutes ago, you talked about accessible spots for birding. I just wanted to ask you a bit more about that. Now, I'm sure there's a range of things that would make a, a spot accessible to birders with disabilities, given that there's a lot of different disabilities. But just in terms of uh, broad overarching characteristics, what would you say makes a birding spot accessible to people with disabilities? Well, a lot of the accessibility has to do with physical things. Uh, is the surface uh, reasonably level? Um, is it navigable by a wheelchair or a walker or a stroller, that sort of thing? Um, is, is, it, is the trail laid out so that it's very easy to establish the route and, and not go off in the wrong direction? Do they keep the vegetation cut back along the sides of the trail so that if your apparatus is a little wider than a person that you still are not going to 
get into the poison ivy and all that. So things like that are go a long way to make a, a trail accessible. Not only do they have to set set up the accessibility, but they have to be maintained. We had a uh, we had a trail that I was involved in uh, not too far from where I live, and uh, it was wonderful. I mean, it had braille signage and a rope guide and all, but I went there once and nobody had cut it back for a year, and the thing was so overgrown that I couldn't even use it. So there is a bit of maintenance involved. Yeah, no, for sure. That's definitely something you have to keep up if you want to make sure that an accessible spot for birding or anything else really just remains an accessible spot. You mentioned your website as well in our conversation, and I wanted to go back to the website. I know you said you hadn't really maintained it for a while, but one of the really cool things about your website is the many recordings of bird song that can be found there. How many species of birds have you recorded on your website? And one of the things that I couldn't help notice when I looked at your website is that there are a number of recordings of birdsong from different parts of the world. Does that mean that you went out and got all of that, your, you know, all of those recordings yourself? Or did you have friends and other people make contributions to your website so you could have birdsong from as far away as Sweden and India? I did most of the recording that was done in uh, the United States. I also went to Sweden once on vacation and recorded some birds there. Uh, but the one from India was recorded by a wonderful guy who uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a close friend of, of his, but he knew about my interest in birds and he took his Victor stream with him to India when he went for a visit to his family and recorded a bunch of birds. And there was another blind person in, I believe it was Singapore that sent me a lot of bird sounds. So a lot of that uh, comes from other people. And then my twin brother who's into photography he took pictures of a lot of the birds that I recorded, not not at the same time, but he would find one of the same species. And so I was able to match pictures with a lot of the recordings on there. Great. Well, listen, Jerry, it wouldn't be a complete interview on birding by ear if we didn't actually listen to some bird songs. So why don't you play a couple of clips for us? Maybe you can tell us what we're listening to and we can hear a bit of bird song on the program. I think I'll try the Baltimore Oriole uh, first. You're going to hear a voice on there who the person's name is Lang Elliott. And I always try to give attribution to him because I use a lot of his recordings and he's aware of it and has given me uh, permission to do so. But he's uh, one of the foremost nature recordists in the world. So you'll hear him uh, announce the bird and then you'll hear the bird. Baltimore Oriole. So you can see that that bird makes a lot of different sounds. I hope it came through. Yeah, yeah. No, that was really amazing. At first, I was going to say it sounds a bit like a, a sparrow, but then it just goes ahead and makes all of these different sounds out of nowhere. It was really quite something. Hey, listen, I have another question. So it sounds like that bird is really clear. How is that possible? If a bird is out in the wild, you should be able to hear background noise, wind, leaves, other birds even. What goes into making one of these recordings? Do you just, I don't know, isolate a single bird and isolate their bird song so it can be heard above and over all the other noise in the environment? That's what the professionals do. My recordings always have a lot of noise in them because I just don't, I don't have the thousands of dollars of equipment and my my editing, my post-production uh, software is you know, rather primitive compared to what they use. But really, they try to get the microphone as close to where they think the bird's going to be. And I'm sure it involves climbing trees sometimes and setting up uh, 
poles and things with microphones on them, but uh, it is amazing. Most of uh, Lang's recordings, you don't really hear much of anything in the background. Oh, well, I think it's pretty incredible. My post-production skills are pretty limited. I honestly wouldn't know where I'd be without Marco Flalo. So apart from that, what else can you play for us today? Uh, do you have a, a request? Well, you did mention The Crow a couple of times during our conversation. So why don't we go ahead and see if you can find that one? Okay, here's the American Crow. There's another one called a Fish Crow, which has a very different sound. But here's the American Crow. American Crow. I won't play the entire thing, but I can tell you that crows make a lot of different sounds. Those are just the more. That one sounded a bit angry, to be honest with you. <laughs> so let me just play real quickly the fish crow, which uh, from what I've been told looks pretty much the same as the American crow. But uh, my wife used to call it the uh-uh bird because she said it always sounded like it was saying uh-uh. So here's the fish crow. Fish crow. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it definitely sounds that way. Hey, listen, in Toronto, we have a sports team called the Toronto Blue Jays. By any chance, do you have a recording of the Blue Jays? I certainly do. And the Blue Jay is a mimic. It can even mimic a red-tailed hawk, and it makes a lot of sounds, yeah. But here's its um, some of its more common ones. Blue Jay. So there, there are just some of the sounds that they make. That's amazing. And you're saying that's all from one bird? Yes. Well, that is really incredible. Hey, listen, Jerry, what would you say uh, might be one of the rarer birds in your collection that we might have a chance to listen to? I don't think I have anything that's so rare. I, will, um, I, can, I can play one that I consider one of the most beautiful uh, birds. And by the way, they always sound better out in the wild than they do on a recording. Uh, even, yeah, even the uh, the Baltimore Oriole, when I hear one outside, it's more striking to me because it just has a certain tone to it that just can't be uh, duplicated even in the greatest of recordings. But I'm going to try to play the wood thrush. Let's see, wood thrush. And the wood thrush has sort of a flute lights like sound. They're heard more in deeper woods, and they're often heard uh, late in the evening around twilight. So here goes. Wood thrush. And they do that over and over again. And Yeah, that's a very distinctive call. And I think I've heard that one before, actually. But I hadn't identified it as a wood rush. No, that is really amazing. Just as we wrap up here, Jerry, what advice would you give to a potential prospective birder, someone who's blind, who's thinking they might want to get into birding by year? How should they get started? I would recommend uh, that they get their hands on the birding by ear uh, CDs and more birding by ear. I know they're still in production. I'm sure Amazon sells them and lots of other, uh, there are lots of ways to get them uh, because there are uh, very involved uh, explanations of what the birds are like. And so I think that's a good way to get started. Another way is to find somebody. There, most places have birding clubs, and you can contact the club and see if they can find somebody who's willing to go with you and uh, just do some birding. And I think the more you do it, if you have any interest at all, your interest will be piqued, and then you'll begin to find other uh, related things and it can be life-changing for other people, as it has been for me. 
Jerry, it's been so nice talking to you about this. You know, it was a blast having you play some of the song, the bird song for us, and just hearing about your journey and your decades of passion for birding by year. Thanks so much for being on the program. Well, you're very welcome, and you're a good interviewer, and I thank you for having me. That was Jerry Barrier, who is an avid birder by ear and a retired access technology instructor. If you found this interesting uh, and want to get into birding by ear, I hope you'll pick up some of those CDs that Jerry talked about over the course of our interview. And of course, we would love if you could drop us a line to let us know how you feel about the program. You can find us on Twitter at AMI Audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. Or you can find us by email, feedback at ami.ca. Give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And if you leave a voicemail, please don't forget to leave permission to play the audio on the program. Well, folks, I got to sprout a couple of wings and fly out of the studio. But it's been great talking to you about birding by year. And thanks for indulging me because this has been uh, something of an interest of mine. And I hope to come back with more programming for you in the very near future. My technical... And the videographer today has been Matthew McGurk. Technical producer is Marka Flalo, who is amazing. Uh, Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for AMI Podcasts. And Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. I've been your host, Joy Gupta. Thanks for listening and happy birding. Thank you.